this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. sick man yep you guys heard it lamb sick but he's still here i'm gonna start that with your nose blowing <laughs> fantastic i want them to know what they're in for well i feel like i feel like i'm one of those guys i don't get sick very often like it might even be at this point like every couple of years now but when i get sick i get sick yeah your immune system just goes oh god well, I, and plus i don't think uh, you coughing or blowing your nose or having a stuffy voice can push people away as much as apparently the last episode did, or the not the last episode, the episode before did. It's um, the testicles, man. When we talk about balls, it was, and that that wasn't even like a crazy. <laughs> no, I feel crazy. like I feel like I feel like we've talked about way crazier shit than that. Mm-hmm. But to be real with you, though, it's one of those. Uh, you know, we were talking about this the other day. Not you and I, but like me and another friend. Like how weird the social stigmas are around anything sexually related in the United States compared to everywhere else in the world. <laughs> yeah, and like I said to you before we started recording, if those people were offended by that, then this is the wrong show for them, anyways. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> because I'm not going to censor myself about, especially something that I actually think is an important issue. Is that although I, I do have something to say about. Um, self-examinations. You know, one of the doctors, I saw two doctors during that process, and one of them said that they actually don't encourage people to men to do self-examinations anymore because it leads to too many false positives. Sure. And or and or men who don't know what the heck they're checking for and miss something important but figure they don't yeah. have to go to the doctor. And that I mean the equipment down there is weird and yeah, I can see I can see that like somebody going, what's what's this? I'm like, well sir, that's actually part of your normal anatomy. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is a ball, sir. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and to actually to touch on with with the audience listening now, to touch on what we were talking about earlier, um, or I shouldn't say earlier, like two minutes ago, <laughs> I guess technically that's earlier, the idea of those older episodes when we used to study, because um, you, you and I had this long conversation 
after we finished recording last week's show about, and we had a whole bunch of like really exciting realizations of things that are possible. I'm not making any promises, but this is what we've been talking about. Um, if you guys listened to the earlier episodes of this show, like the, I guess technically it's, I, I, I put it in as season two where we used to study artists like David Lynch and Nick Cave and uh, Frida Kahlo. We wanted to do that again, but we're going to do that for the Patreon supporters because, you know, it's exciting and it's exciting for us. That would be uh, a really fascinating blog, actually, of <laughs> the whole experience. The anti-social media. Um, yeah. So on Friday, let's see, I have a couple of entries here. Um, at 10.45 a.m., um, I have panicked, don't know what to do. feel like <laughs> I need to check in on... What is this word? Business accounts. <laughs> business accounts, but I'm nowhere near my laptop, so I don't have that option. Um, I guess the world's just going to have to wait. Yeah, it's a uh, weird feeling, isn't it? God, that's that's the weirdest thing is to, to put a schedule on it. I don't realize how often I look at that stuff on my phone until I stop looking at it. <laughs> it's horrifying. We'll we'll get into my screen time stuff later. But just looking at the screen time for people who don't know, Apple has a thing built in now called screen time where you can see how many times you pick up your phone, how many times you've been using your phone throughout the day. Um it's it's horrifying, especially when you look at things. You're like, I only looked at that for like five minutes today. No, hour and a half. Anyways, continue, please. Um, let's see. So there's a little bit more of that. Um, I uh, let's see. I actually wrote my feelings on the first time I looked at social media too um, on my computer. This is at five twenty p.m. on that same Friday, and all I read is "phew." Um, <laughs> I, I got I my feel, fix. I feel attached to the world again, um, is what I wrote. And then I wrote, that is pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm attached to absolutely nothing because there is no connection that has been made through me doing what I'm doing. Right. Uh, Let's see. 945. um, Made a phone call to see if that would replace the feeling of FOMO which is uh, fear of missing out. Right. Um, and it actually, that, that, that leads into a whole different conversation. Um, yeah, I want, to get, I want to talk about that too. So let me, let me add that to the list here. Yeah. Um, because that's something that came up for me as well. So continue. Um, and yes, that conversation actually made me feel, I, I probably felt more connected in that one phone call than I felt... Um, in the entire week's worth of social media leading up until up till us recording that episode, um, you know, I felt I had like an hour long conversation with someone for the first time that wasn't work related, and it was really damn liberating. <laughs> well, it's, it's um, it fits into this whole thing that we've been talking about this idea of a fake conversation, right? We've we've convinced ourselves that we're in a conversation by being on social media, but when you actually step outside of it, you realize. Yeah, you miss it because there's an addiction quality and there's all this stuff. But then you start doing other things and you go, oh, this this is a real conversation. Yeah, and it's funny because you realize how much, how much you, how, how many assumptions you make about people's lives by what you see on their social media. You know, the bullet points that have become um, what you see their daily lives as and how completely inaccurate that is or how totally incomplete it is. 
I found um, I haven't done yet, but I've been thinking about the idea. Um, I actually didn't write down a note to connect this, but um, I, at one point in reading, I think it's a digital minimalism, which I'll talk about later. I had um, there's an idea in the book where he's talking about this guy who does what's called office hours, where he'll say um, every day at five o'clock or every day at five thirty, I think it is. I'm available for phone calls and this is for friends and family. So you don't need to schedule a call with me or whatever. If you want to talk to me, call me at five 30 and we'll talk. And that's like his drive home. So, and that's how he started communicating with people. And I was listening to that and I'm like, maybe I need to invest in phone calls more, you know, cause you can't always meet people, but you know, there are people that I text message every once in a while, you know, like my friend John in Washington or whatever, where I probably rather, have a phone conversation and I just didn't realize that that's what I would rather have. Sure. And, and you, and, and not only that, but you, once you start tangibly doing it, like if you actually start having those conversations, you'll, you, you kind of get addicted to them. Not really addicted to them. You just, you find yourself being much more interested in what people are actually doing. Um, you want to know the full story versus the snapshot, which makes you feel satisfied in the moment. It's like that placebo effect. Um, right. For social contact through social media, yeah, it's like it's like you're hungry. You could either eat a meal or you can just you know throw a piece of candy in your mouth. Yeah, you know the, the candy is not going to fill you, but it will make you forget until you need another piece of candy. Yeah, and and now you're twenty pieces of candy deep, and it's two hours later, and you're still not full. Yeah, and you're fat, <laughs> <laughs> and you feel like shit, and your teeth are rotting. Sure. Um, so any other revelations other than phone calls through, through the process? Um, I extended it's, I then went on a completely different tangent. Um, let's see, Saturday, nah, Saturday's not really that interesting. More of the panic, same panic feeling. It doesn't really get interesting until Monday. Yeah. It takes um, a few days to get it out of your system almost. Yeah. It's really weird. That is, that is actually an interesting phenomenon. It really did take me a couple of days before I really adjusted. And then I, I had this thought in my head at like a, let's see 11. are like us you know that that um this is a weird way to say it but that were nobodies when they started podcasting you know they're not already a celebrity like joe rogan was already a celebrity when he started but people sure. like us that don't realize when they get into podcasting that those other people didn't get into podcasting to make money off of it it just happened to happen for them they actually got into podcasting to sell something else Sure. You know, like comedians got into podcasting so that more people would want to go see them do stand up when they were on tour, or they got into it to sell books, or publications got into it to sell more subscriptions to their actual publication. Sure. Like Joe Rogan and, and Mark Marin and, and, you know, Bill Burr, all of those guys have mm -hmm. super successful podcasts, but the podcasts are basically a giant billboard. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not taking away from any of their podcasts because I love no. all three of their podcasts. All people, oh, yeah. three of their podcasts are actually phenomenal. Um, but it's definitely a vessel um, for something else that they're doing. You know, it's not a standalone. But um, I think that's the difficulty for guys like you and I is that this is, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have plenty of other stuff that we're doing, but not it doesn't feed something or it doesn't feed back into this. You know, we haven't created the feedback loop uh, that basically um, it, it, that is catalytic. Uh, and I think that's the, the interesting challenge for those getting into podcasting, unless you're already famous and you're, you're, you've got a way to draw an audience into your podcast um, and or your show and vice versa. It's actually really, really tough. 
especially now because it's you know all the big guys are getting in the game now and i don't mean celebrities i mean like big corporations you know spotify is dumping all this money into having shows made and audible did it for a while all these companies are starting to dump money into podcasts because they're realizing that it's it's a really easy way to maybe not always make money but to build a brand because podcasting compared to doing pretty much everything else is really cheap it's really cheap um you know, like doing video, oh man, it's expensive to do video. Not because you're buying film and stuff like that, but you got to have, you got to pay the people who know how to film. You got to pay the people who know how to edit. You got to pay the, the talent that's in front of it. And then you got to do all the other backend stuff that everything has to do. And let's not forget about the, the tens of thousands of dollars in equipment cost you. Mm-hmm. And, that's for, and that's for shitty gear, by the way. Like if you're getting really good gear, it's a lot more expensive than that. Yeah. And I think that's why you, you're seeing kind of a weird trend. There's a lot of shifting in the industry right now. Like, for example, right like an hour ago, I was listening to Song Exploder. You've heard that, right? Oh, wonderful, yeah. So, weird thing, uh, Rishikesh Harway, I always say his name, it's a difficult name to say. Rishikesh Harway, yeah, sure. That's as close as I'll ever get either, so well done. So, he's made an announcement that he's basically stepping away from the podcast. Oh, weird, why? It's he's okay. It's really weird, and that's why I use the term "stepping away." He's not leaving the podcast. He's not going to be the host anymore, and he's not going to be a producer anymore. He's just going to be doing something else. I think he's building a business, basically, yeah. and he, so he has somebody else going to host the show, and and then his co-producer um, Casey, I can't remember what his name is, is basically going to do all the all that work. And that's so, it's so weird, but I mean, it makes sense because you're like, oh, he wants to build something else. Well, not only that, but considering the level of complexity in that show, um, I can't imagine doing that for free for very long. (laughs) He did it for five years. This was, he just, he announced it after episode 150, which was Fleetwood Mac, by the way. Great episode. And then you have, um, you have what's going on with all these podcasts becoming TV shows, which to me, I'm sorry, but it, it actually pisses me off um, because it's just, it's to me, it says, oh, you got into podcasts to jump to something else. And, and maybe only I feel that way because I'm a podcaster and I'm in this to podcast. I'm not trying to jump to something else. So, you know, like, I mean, you've got I, Lore is a TV show. Serial is going to be a TV show. Homecoming is a TV show. Sword and Scale is going to be a TV show. Up and Vanish is going to be a TV show. Dirty John's already a TV show. Pod Saves America is a TV show. Which, by the way, Pod Saves America, you kept the name for a TV show? Come on. Yeah, it's a little weird. It's really weird. And it's just, it's it's so frustrating to me because it's, it's like um, what you're seeing is... Some of them, not all of them. What you're seeing is these these people went into podcasting and they they did really well. Those are all actually, there's not a single one of those that isn't well done. And then you have companies coming in and going, how can we make money off of this? How can we make money off this? And so that let's make it a TV show because people like to watch TV. And so they're going to try to replicate. I mean, like the lore one is supposedly really cool because it does something different. It takes it 
into the visual area in a way that the show doesn't. But I don't know. But you see, I mean, if 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 you do make that move towards something like that and you change it, you you use it as something that is supplemental or 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 augmenting of the original, then I can I can see that being really cool. You know, but if you're literally just going for a cash grab, um, like many of them are, then that is just uh, it's just deplorable. It's taking the same magic that you got, you know, from um, the, the the podcast and hoping to replicate it in such a way that gains you the same audience or more on the visual side, so you can pay for ad space. And I think that's just horrifying. And I mean, to be clear, too, I'm not I'm not upset with the podcasters because put in that position, I'd probably do the same thing. You know, these guys aren't making a fortune off of podcasting. So somebody comes along and goes, hey, we can double or triple your income and you're already kind of already doing what we want you to do. Of course, they're going to jump at it. You know, it's like sure. bands bands that get shitty record deals. Why do they take them? Because it's better than not having one at all. Um, or at least back in the day. But it pisses me off that, you know, people see this industry and instead of investing into podcasting, maybe that's what... What I'm trying to work my way into is not that these companies that are coming in and they want to throw money at these podcasters. It would be one thing if they did that and they were investing it into podcasting and making podcasting better and helping the podcasting community. Instead, they're trying to steal the talent from podcasting and shove it into their old model. Sure. And that's what pisses me off. But, you know, that's, 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 that's an age-old tactic for most of these. I mean, look at the music industry when it transitioned over to streaming. I mean, a lot of the same thing happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. And it, it does iron it out because usually the companies end up tanking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So sooner or later, there's there's a correction in the market for people who are going for the cash grab. Like, it doesn't work forever, you know? And and, and the unfortunate thing is that the position we're in like right now, we get to see the very beginning of the cannibalizing of the industry, but eventually it corrects for itself, you know? Eventually the world catches on and figures out that all these, all these punk-ass corporate executives and i'm not even bad-mouthing all corporate executives um so anyone who who gets you know i'm not a fat cat shouldn't be fat kind of guy i just like you, you know because one of the guys i respect most for example is is kevin feige and he's a billionaire mm-hmm. um you know but because you and, and, and it very clearly you can see why it's because there's such a love for what he does i don't give a shit if you make a fuck ton of money Doing what you love and showing that heart in the creation, that, or the, the 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 stuff that comes out of what you love. But if you're literally just doing it for a cash grab, uh, like you know, you look around at all of these these guys at these various companies, um, like you know Turner or CBS or whatever it may be, who who are doing things literally to make money and cannibalizing the art in order to do that. I mean, Kevin Feige is such a great example of how you can do it and still have the love for it at the same time. I think too what what I think what nags at me a little bit, and I don't know if it pisses me off, but it just nags at me is there's there's this idea among creatives sometimes that of scarcity, this idea of creativity being a limited resource um, <laughs> this and I don't mean talent wise because that's a different debate, but I mean like. I do this show and then somebody wants me to do a TV show. So I'm going to do this show as a TV show because they're scared to try something else, or maybe they don't have the idea to do something else with the medium using the medium to its advantage. You know, like what can I do 
here. Like I haven't watched the lore, but I would assume lore does really well in the visual format because they're essentially ghost stories. So you could do some really cool stuff visually with that that you can't do on a podcast and vice versa. So I can see how that relationship works. But the Pod Save America thing, no, no, no diss to them, but I mean, come on. You guys are sitting around and talking. What's the difference between that TV show? You're sitting around talking with cameras. There's no, it's just creatively lazy to me. You could have yeah, done no, something so much better. I have high, that's what it, it bugs me because I have high expectations. I think ultimately that's the crux of it for me is that I don't like the laziness. You know, like if I'm, if I'm going to define it in any way, um, that's, that's, you know, like I said, I, if you're going to do something creative or cool, then yeah, all power to you, go for it, you know? But if you're literally just going to try to recycle the same thing in the hopes of replicating the same level of success, then you're, you're ruining what you're trying to, it, it's, then it's not about, it's not about creation anymore. It's just purely about monetization. And I, I can't respect that. That's why, going back to where this whole thing started, that's why when I think about stuff I want to do for Patreon, I don't want to do the same stuff I'm already doing for the patrons. I want it to be something different, not only for them, but for me. Like I deserve to be able to do something different and to expand and to challenge myself. You know, like I didn't think I'd be doing these daily journals and I just kind of started screwing around with it. And now I really look forward to doing them and I enjoy it. And they're getting longer and it's really crazy. but when you open yourself to those opportunities, your, your limits and your, you know, I've talked about this a long time ago when we talked about me doing vlogs, how what you believe your limitations are, aren't actually your limitations. They stretch so much further beyond what you actually believe you're capable of. And you have to open yourself to that. And that's the, that to me, that's really the adventure of being a creative person is opening yourself to that adventure and seeing how far can I go? What can I do? What can I become? And that's why failure is such a big part of it because if you're worried about failure, you would never do that. Well, I think there are two things that diametrically oppose each other there too, which makes it difficult, right? Like if you choose a life of creativity, then, then you you choose a life of bravery. You choose a life of, of looking around the corner and, and seeing what's next or, or, or destroying something in order to create something brand new. Like if you truly are creative and you want to be creative... Um, as an artist for, for, for your living. And I think the moment you choose to take a monetary, you put a monetary value on your creativity. Like for example, if a uh, record label signs you and they want you to do three specific kinds of albums and you say yes to it, then it defeats the purpose of why you started doing that in the first place. And I think that's the, the trap people fall into is, you know, the, the glitz and glamour of the money that comes along with it, it supersedes the, the, the the driving ideal that led you to that moment in the first place, which is to choose creativity over a life of, of predictability. And I think that's like a lesson that musicians had to learn when streaming came around, right? Um, or even actually before that, when you know, Napster and all of that stuff came about. It went from this idea of like, hey, we can all, we can all be rock stars. We can all be Motley Crue. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, we can't. But we can't all be blue-collar workers. We can all tour and make enough money to pay our bills. And then maybe we come home, you know, like Ryan, he has to come home and, and work at FedEx. And he's not ashamed of that. That's his life. And he's, he's stoked that like he gets to go and, you know, play in Power Man and play in Strata and then tech for 311 
And then he comes home and he gets to be home and like, that's his life. And he's cool with that. Sure. But it takes a shifting and everybody, I think that podcasting is going through the rock star phase right now where everybody wants to be Joe Rogan. Yeah. But only Joe Rogan can be Joe Rogan. That's why we love him. Yeah. There's a reason why there's only one of that guy or one of those guys, you know what I mean? Uh and and it's it's tough too because I, I I understand the impulse you know I the, there's there's no person that gets into uh, the world of podcasting that doesn't want an audience or doesn't want to be successful and does, unless you're just really really fucking weird and of course there are those people out there and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that either you know some people just like the sound of their own voice and and want to make something that that will live on past them and that's totally fine but you know for for the rest of us like i i I would love to have a huge audience for the show it would allow us to do a lot of interesting and and weird things um you know uh and 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 i think ultimately the 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 choice for for us um the reason why i got back into this show with you um is because in the long run what i ultimately want is enough of an audience to allow us the option to, to choose this life much more easily without having to sacrifice a bunch of other things in order to make it possible. Right. And, and we could very easily continue to live the, with that rock star mindset of like, okay, if we're going to have that, then, you know, we have to do this and we have to do this and we got to get our, our numbers up and we, you know, we got to make sure we appeal to everybody and uh, don't say fuck. And let's not talk about testicles. Let's not name the episode testicles, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, but we don't do any of that shit <laughs> because, you know, in, in reality, you don't have to live like that. You can very easily, here's, here's a good way to look at it. You can have 10, like you can be Casey Neistat, Right. You can have 10 million subscribers and put up a video, but only 999,000 of them watch the video. So you get into 10%, 9, 10% turnaround, right? And you're sure. making money off of them and you're going, cool, I make a lot of money off of them. So he makes, we'll say, I'm just going to have no idea what he makes, but we'll say he makes uh, $20,000 a day, probably way more than that. But we'll just use that as a number. Now you got somebody else who has a completely tiny audience compared to that. They have maybe 50,000 listeners. Maybe that's it. Or uh, we'll stick with YouTube. Uh, 50,000. Actually, this metaphor won't work with YouTube. Um, 50,000 listeners. It's a podcast. But they make awesome premium content. And of those 50,000 listeners, 40,000 of them pay $10 a month. Well, now that's $400,000 a month. They're making almost as much money as Casey Neistat is with 2 million people with passive income. And it, it's, so it's, it's feasible to be able to achieve being able to do this full-time without having to become a Joe Rogan, without having to become a Casey Neistat, without having to become a Motley Crue. You, you, can, you just have to set things up with that in mind, as opposed to the other, and realize, yes, there will be premium content. And some people will be annoyed that they can't see the premium content for free, but it's premium content. And the people who pay for it will be able to look at it as much as they want. And it's a weird, I think we're in the transition period where people are starting to realize that that's acceptable, but some people haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> well, there's also... Um interesting thing too there's a, a, there's an article that I've, I've been meaning to send you um that talks about 
I forget the name of the guy, like he's the guy that we always read on Medium, um, where he talks about stop giving shit away for free. Hmm. Um, and and you gotta find that if you can. I will, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll send it to you so we can post it in the show notes but it's it, it, it we live in a world with zero inherent value <laughs> you know nothing has nothing has any any real sense of, of value anymore and that's really really tough i mean for people who want to create things that are are, are that have an inherent sense of value you know the, the amount of time for example that it used to take for us to research those previous episodes i mean i remember some like the Murakami episode where for any of you out there who haven't read Hikuro Murakami, holy crap, it is dense. It is difficult. It is time consuming. And then I, I can't imagine someone doing that full time and not getting paid for it because you would literally not have any time to do anything else. Right. And I mean, by the way, you guys should go listen to that episode of this. I think it's episode one of season two. <laughs> to this day, even after taking how long do we take off? Like a year and a half off like of the show. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's still our number one episode. <laughs> That's and and you know what? Good because that one was a pain in the ass. It's I mean, big in Japan, actually. Ironically, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Hiroko Murakami, or is it Hikuro or Hiroko Murakami? I don't Haruki, 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 Haruki Murakami. But I mean, good. And and that's that's fantastic because then it it tells me that there's a direct correlation between the amount of time we spend on something and how much people inherently like it. And that's why it makes sense to do premium content for the more difficult stuff. You know, like if I do premium content, if I do video for premium content, we don't have a video editor and we don't have a cameraman. So you and I are going to have to figure out how to do the idea that we have and film it at the same time. And then I've got to edit it. So it's going to probably, with all the other editing I have to do and all the other work that I do, it's probably going to take me months to edit. So maybe if we're lucky, <laughs> we'll get four videos out a year. But it'll be worth it because it'll be something different. Sure. Instead of just passing off scraps. That's that's what I don't want to do. I don't want to say, hey, support me. I mean, theoretically, we could say, well, I do put out eight podcasts a month. And if you want to listen to those to support, but if I really wanted to do that, I put the full show behind a paywall or both sure. shows. I don't want to do that. Um, sorry, audience. My cat is being annoying. It wants to leave the room. So I have to walk away for a second. <laughs> I'll be speak right back. Amongst your, speak amongst yourselves. So um, back in the old Saturday Night Live days, um, when Mike Myers uh, used to get flaclemt, uh, he used to give topics to the audience to speak about. And uh, one of my favorites was the Holy Roman Empire was neither Holy Roman nor an empire discuss. I kind of wish I didn't catch the end of that so that when I went to edit... I was hoping you would find it later. That was kind of the point of that. One of my... Uh, there's just two shows, well, technically three shows, but I don't want to mention the third because one of the people on that show pissed me off. <laughs> I don't want to support them by telling anybody about their show. Oh, man. But two of the shows that I feel like are the template in some way to this show, I wouldn't say content-wise, but just um, I feel a kinship to them, we'll say, um, is Weird Studies, first of all, which is if you guys haven't listened to Weird Studies and you actually like listening to us, Imagine if Lamb and I were like way more intelligent and way more well-read. <laughs> I mean, we're relatively intelligent, relatively well-read, but those guys are just 
to me, they're just brilliant. Oh, those guys are freakish, yeah. And they're both college professors too, so that makes it's sense. damn impressive on many levels just listening to them talk. Like even if I have no idea what they're talking about, just the way they speak is pleasing. And and they're not stuffy. You know, they don't have a problem throwing out the word fuck here and there. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. But um, there's that show. And then there's another show called Exponent, which is kind of the other end of the spectrum. They talk about like um, business, um, tech business, but not like tech about gadgets and stuff like that. They talk about like the market. And um, it sounds really boring, but it's actually a really interesting show. They're actually... They're, they've been on like a weird hiatus. But anyways, I can't remember why I brought up those two shows. But either way, you guys should go listen to those shows. Um, I don't know. Oh, yes, I do know. I remember now. So Exponent, the second one I mentioned, when they first started, I've gone back and I listened to their whole archive. When when they stopped doing the show for like three months, I went back to the beginning and listened to the whole show. And when they were first starting, I think it was like 10 episodes in, one of the one of the guys had to go and take out the garbage because the garbage man was like outside. He's in, he's in Taipei. So like the time difference between the two, the other guys here in California. So while he was gone, the other guy did a monologue like you did, but didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but then when the guy came back, he didn't know that he had been doing a monologue. So he didn't find, and that's the guy that did the editing. <laughs> so you totally just reminded me of that right now. Wow. I I'm not gonna. That. That's really. That's really funny. I'm not. I'm. I'm not gonna search through all the episodes to remember which one that was. Yeah. <laughs> that's not something that shows up in show notes. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just. I'm. I'm really excited to try out some of these ideas and stuff like that. It's just a matter of getting there. Um, you know, I, I. I think a lot of things have just been kind of clicking into place for me. Like that. That's. That's a big realization for me. It's like, oh. I've had the goalpost or maybe to use a golf term for you, I've had the flag in the wrong hole. You uh, know? Sure. Like I've been thinking like, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, or maybe not even the flag in the wrong hole. I've been driving towards the wrong hole. You know, like <laughs> it would be like being on a course where, where you're supposed to drive to the right, but maybe you see another hole for, for another hole. Yeah. I've, I've actually done that too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and you go and you go 225 yards in the wrong direction only to realize that the the flag on the right was the one all along and now you have to traverse twice the length in order to get there. Yeah, and the one that you drove couldn't get to the other one anyways cuz it's way too fucking far. Yep. That's like trying to be Joe Rogan. For everybody trying to be Joe Rogan, it's like it's possible. It's possible, but it's not probable. <laughs> yeah, but you know what the most liberating thing about doing this show with you now is is that we're not trying to be Joe Rogan anymore. And I think we no. did for a long time. You know what I mean? Like there was a period of time there where we really were focused on on trying to achieve certain things with our audience and, and, and looking at numbers pretty much daily, sometimes even hourly, in order to, to try to meet some sort of weird expectation that we'd set for ourselves as to what the show was supposed to do and how quickly it was supposed to grow. Right. And, and that is so exhausting. <laughs> and, and to be clear, he, he means mostly me. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. I mean, you, I was obsessed. You, you were obsessed. I mean, it, it got to the point where where you were like in the matrix with this stuff, man. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, that, I think that going through that, um, first of all, I think that's how we got to where we're able to do this the way that we are now. Um, but that made me realize that even though in some ways I'm super mellow, 
when it comes to certain things, I'm completely type A and I never, ever really thought I was type A and I kind of totally am. Yeah, you would. And it's, it's funny how, how, how clear that becomes too. Like you're not just type A, you're very type A when it comes to that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think an ultimate, I mean, we moved around a lot trying things because, you know, like I'm, I was watching the numbers and I thought, I think I just watched too much shit. This is, this is something too. You know, I think we mentioned last week how, um, when you look at all online sources, everything starts to sound the same because you're all pulling from the same place. Sure. All the fucking advice out there is the same bullshit too. You know, if you're a, if you're a podcaster and you want to do really well, every article you find out there is going to tell you the same shit. It's going to tell you the same thing over and over again. And you start believing the hype. But the reality is it's, it's like that, um, that rant that I went off about that guy not having read the Mahabharata. Like, you didn't read it. You're just repeating stuff that other people said from other people who said it, from other people who said it, and maybe that person read it. Well, and not not to bring it back to the golf analogy too, but I can't even tell you the amount of, of people that I try to help in the golf world who, you know, and, and I think the analogy is really apt too, is that, you know, when you look at 10 different golf swings, even 10 different golf swings among 10 very different or very good golfers, you know, legends in the game, um, they all swing the club differently. So the advice that you give from one person to the next is very specific to what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve it. You know, like some guys are built like Tiger Woods and can hit the ball 350 yards and, 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 and maximize their distance that way. Other guys like, you know, a guy like me, for example, is never, I'm not going to be 6'2 and built like a condor. So I'm never going to be able to do that. So I have to find a way to achieve a result without those physical tools. And I think, you know, in the podcasting world is really similar. You know, like a lot of the advice that you, 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 you hear, which the more you do this, the more, the more you realize that most of it's bullshit <laughs> because it's coming from sources that, that have absolutely no idea what it's like to succeed with a podcast, which I think is, is, is inherently uh, disingenuous and then horrifying. But they don't take into account the people podcasting. Like, you know, for, for you and I, for example, it wasn't about, you know, the, the, the artists we covered or the, 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 you know, the subjects we talked about or the research that we did, it was our interaction. Like so many of the, the, the friends that we got advice from, you know, like I remember um, talking to Brandon at some point, he said, I wanted to hear more of you guys. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So our bread and butter for you and I is our interactions. Like most most everyone I know who I've turned on to our podcast tells me that the best part of, of our episodes is how you and I have this obvious rapport and we're both nerds in the same way. And so because of that, their lens, it's almost an Ocean's Eleven-like familiarity that allows us to be able to bounce back and forth really quickly. And that's entertaining. And and not everyone's going to have that. You can't have that in a true crime podcast. You know what I mean? Right. Or at least hopefully not. <laughs> oh, actually, my favorite murder is kind of like that. And I, I, I used to dig that show quite a bit. Yeah, it was, that's, I think that's why I didn't like that show. <laughs> Which sounds funny. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, when you, when you really, like, you look at, like, the numbers thing, that's, and that's the kind of bullshit advice you get where it's like, watch your numbers so you can see what works for you, what works and doesn't work. And in some way, I don't think this is the origin of it. And I actually really like this person. So I don't want to talk shit about this person, but it reminds me of 
why I didn't like Growth Hacker Marketing by Ryan Holiday. I did not like that book because essentially it said, do the market research first, find out what the market wants, and then make the product. And it makes sense when it comes to that, but applying that to books and applying that to other things, the way that that podcasts and creative endeavors, you can't do that. You know, it's it's literally like like you said, it's like passing this. Okay, well, how should I swing? Okay, then that's how I'm going to swing. Not really, you know. Well, 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 not only that, but I think if we're pulling the golf analogy into this, I think I think the issue is that you know one of the most damaging things that I see in the golf world is is people giving bad advice based on preconceived notions about what the golf swing or what the game of golf is supposed to be. And I imagine podcasting is really similar. You know, there, There's a template for success for a certain kind of podcaster. And I think that the, the, the tools that are then created in order to, to leverage that success um, very much cater to that specific style of podcast or podcaster. And I don't think that that's, that's true with most people who who, who get into the podcasting world. I think that's a lot of the reason why people fail is because they try a lot of this advice. You know, because it, I know I know a couple of people personally who have gotten into the podcasting world who have quit because it's just frustrating. And I think a lot of the reason why it's frustrating, like the game of golf is frustrating, is if you get bad advice, you're going to try it and just bang your head against the wall until and, and not see a positive result. And, and eventually that wears you down. And I think that that podcasting is is really similar. You know, you can get you can read a hundred articles, and not a single one of them can be right for your style of podcast. And it's not to say that those hundred articles can't have value for someone, but maybe not a single one of them touches on how and why you podcast differently than everybody else. And realizing how you podcast, it's difficult. It's difficult because. Hell, we we still don't know. (laughs) There's insecurities involved, though, too. You know, like like going back to what you said about Brandon. Why didn't we listen to Brandon? Brandon's a good friend of ours. Um, Why didn't we listen to him? We didn't listen to him because we assumed that what he was saying was based on the fact that he was our friend. Of course, he wants to hear more of us because he's our friend. That's the value that we have for him. You know, he's not listening to. This was our assumption. He's not listening to our show to hear what we're talking about. He's just listening to support us because he's our our friend. So what your brain does is go, that's not what everybody else cares about. Sure. So we're 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 gonna thank him for that. But you know, that's not what we're gonna focus on. We're gonna make some we're gonna make this because people will find this value. We spend a lot of time and I mean we didn't do willy-nilly stuff. We spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, like what could the audience want? What would actually be valuable to them without realizing our own value? And that's that's the thing that that's why we're lucky to have ended the show and then come back. Because that's what we realized is like, hmm, better stuff's cool. It's just not something I want to keep doing for a really long time. Sure. Yeah, but so so many people give up before that. I mean, hell, to be honest with you, um, if it weren't for the fact that you were so shockingly persistent, I probably would have given up. Well, I I don't know. I don't know what it was. I just, you know, I, maybe we're lucky in the sense that, like, you know, we don't we don't have outlets um, for conversations like this often enough. So it drives us to want to do these just to talk to each other. <laughs> sure. That's a good point. 
uh, I don't, it's really fascinating just kind of unraveling all of this stuff. And I, one well, of my favorite moments of this, and I, I've probably said this in like three episodes, are the moments when I forget what we're doing and just think I'm in a conversation. You know, I'm sitting here drinking tea and going, oh, I'm just having a good conversation on my uh, Thursday evening. Yeah, and that happens more often than, I mean, to be honest with you, I forget all the time. <laughs> it's happened to me like twice already today. <laughs> uh, uh, not surprising. I do have, you know, I, there's something I wanted to tell you about was, um, remember last week when we were talking about bullet journaling? Uh-huh. Did you did you see the thing I put on Instagram? I did, yes. Okay. <laughs> so for everybody that didn't, so I, I I did like two days of bullet journaling and then I jumped ship to something else. <laughs> um, oh, Chad. Well, the thing about it is this. Okay, I have a reason for it. First of all, I was in Michael's and there's this big paper journal. It's like, I think it's eight by 12. I don't think it's... Holy crap, that is too nine, big. Or nine by 12 or whatever. It's not something I'm going to take with me anywhere. I got my pocket journal. Um, but the reason I wanted this was I had been looking... I knew I knew the moment I started doing bullet journaling that there are some advantages to it. Doing the lists in a bullet journal is very advantageous. But when it comes to visualizing my week, I need I need a calendar square. I need to be because I gotta see for the next month. I need to see the episodes that are coming out. I need to be able to look forward. That's something I have to do visually. Um and yes, I could do that in a bullet journal and take out a ruler and draw. I'm not going to fucking draw a calendar. <laughs> That's not going to happen. I am not that guy. Yeah. I am not that guy. I might do it the first two months thinking I'll learn to love it, but <laughs> it's no, just not going to happen. Is, that is futility. That is futility defined, my friend. And I didn't make a choice to, about that. I just found that when I was going out, you know, going into stores, I was at the mall buying Christmas presents. I was in Office Max at one point. I kept finding myself gravitating towards the sections that had calendars, you know, like pocket calendars and like uh, day planners and stuff like that and flipping through them. And I didn't even realize on a conscious level what I was doing. But what I was doing was looking for that, looking for the thing. So when I saw this, because it's so big, I can actually write stuff in the squares. So Uh, it actually works for what I need it to do. So being able to, I didn't, I didn't want a wall counter because I don't have any wall space left. <laughs> so I went with this big thing, but I think, I think it's going to work. I just need to, there, there are other things about it. I have to figure out like, this is going to be almost like a desk calendar, you know, like that's the place I go to every night to see what I have to do tomorrow. But I want to put that stuff in something portable. At, at some point, you and Chris will have to have a conversation because she literally carries a binder around with a calendar in it. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you, dude. Full pages, man. But it works for her, right? Oh, it works great for her. I mean, she she can't live without that thing. Like a couple of weeks ago, um, she misplaced it um, and freaked out. We, we like scoured San Jose for it. We eventually found it. It's crazy how much her and I are similar. Yeah, it is. It's actually really weird. Yeah, which, so you're, which, you're which dating makes, like a female me. That's weird. Yeah, I mean, I literally was about to say that. That's pretty horrifying because now I'm picturing you with the beard in a wig. <laughs> don't think about that. No, nope, not doing it. It's too late now. I mean, it's in there. Or don't picture her with the beard. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that's like that Friends episode um, where somebody, as a Chandler says something about uh, picturing your mom. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then at the end, like um, Ross is in bed with Rachel 
And she goes to the bathroom. And she comes out dressed like Princess Leia, and it turns into his mom. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would that would destroy my life. By the way, I just saw something about that um, about that show. So, like, I think you and I have talked about this personally before, but <clears throat> I've talked about the idea of soft shows and hard shows. Sure. Um, for everybody listening, hard shows for me are shows that I watch that are that require thought and participation, and you know, like Black Mirror would be a hard show, or. Um, yeah, True Detective, or like a, a real-life crime show, or, you know, something that, that requires me to, like, really be engaged. And then soft shows are things that I can kind of pay attention to and kind of drift off. You know, like, I don't really care what happens to MacGyver in this episode. So that's a soft show. Um, and Friends, because I've seen it so many times, is a soft show. I can just... It's like a palate cleanser. If I'm watching some hard shows... Maybe some dark stuff, or like I've been watching Broad Church and just weeping. <laughs> Before I go to bed, I can put on like two episodes of Friends and like not really pay attention, but then go to bed and be in a relatively good mood. Um. So, anyways, that's to explain why I'm, why I was watching Friends. <laughs> but I pushed play, and all of a sudden, I saw this pop up. It's like this show will be leaving Netflix on January fourteenth. Oh, what? I was really? like, oh, and my. Uh-oh. my my only thought there was like, oh, I wonder who picked it up. You know, like, is it going to go to Hulu? Is it going to go to Prime? Um, and then today I was like, uh, I opened Pocket, the app, and uh, it naturally opens, I think, to the requ- uh, requested, recommended page where it kind of looks at, says it looks at what, you're, what you've been reading and recommends stuff. And at the yeah. top, it says that Netflix is going to be paying one is it one billion? No, can't be hundred. Hundred million, yes, a hundred million dollars to Warner Media to keep Friends for one more year. Jeez, that's like a nine-year-old show. They're gonna pay a hundred million dollars to keep a nine-year-old a show that not even nine-year-old show a show that's been off the air for over nine years. Wow. You know what's crazy about that though? Like, you're probably one. Out of seven people that I personally know who are watching that show on Netflix right now, I think people really like soft shows. I really do. Um, you know who's almost always watching it is our friend Angie. Yeah, she's the one that made me watch it the first time. Actually, I should give her credit there. She's not listening to this. <laughs> Guarantee that. <laughs> uh, it's so weird. I because I mean, and maybe it's just my preconceived notion about who she is as a person, but I just can't picture her watching Friends. Uh, she's she's a sitcom junkie. Yeah, and she I loves that kind now. of stuff. Yeah, if, if I didn't, shows. but if I didn't, if I didn't know that about her, I would have never guessed it. She's a softie. Yeah, she is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so I I had to read the rest of the article. You know, obviously Hulu was trying to get it, but here's here's the like that's I mean that's kind of shocking, but at the same time, you know, whatever. Like you said, you know, like seven people are watching that that you know alone. So maybe it is worth $100 million to keep that show because people like watching it on Netflix. Sure. But the thing that's crazy to me is Warner Media, who owns it, is charging them $100 million because they really want it back. Because they can't do it. It's like an exclusivity deal. So as sure. long as Netflix has it, nobody else can have it. Um, but they want it back because they want to start their own streaming service. And every time I hear the words own streaming service... 
I see the future of streaming going down the toilet. Yep. Where you, you're paying for, you know, like we, it was so great. You know, like I paid $15 at maximum for Netflix and $12 for Hulu. And between the two, I get like, and you know, my hundred dollars a year or $130 a year now for prime, which is what, uh, $11 a month basically. So for $30 a month, I get pretty much everything I want. And then maybe if I really need it, I can get HBO for another 15 bucks. Or I could get cable and not be able to watch stuff when I want. You know, I'm at at the mercy of the schedule, whether you like that or not. And it's more. So that was always the appeal of streaming. But the more these guys start jumping off and splitting, you know, like if Disney has one and then, you know, like... uh, Maybe CNN decides, hey, we're going to be our own service. And then you have yep, ESPN. They've already, they've, already, they've already done that, dude. Did they? Yeah. Must not have done well. If I yeah, didn't hear about it. Well, you have to pay for exclusive content. Like you can have the app and it gives you the, the bigger news stories. But if you want the full news, then you have to, you have to pay for it. Which actually, in that a way... Sense, kinda, actually. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like, which in a way I kind of don't mind. You know? Yeah, um, the, the ones that scare me is like, we're going to... Warner Media, we're going to start this. And if you want to watch Friends, you have to pay $10 a month for Warner Media. It's like the CBS thing with Star Trek Discovery. I was, I'm still annoyed about that, by the way. I still haven't watched it because of that. And I probably never will. Yeah, which is unfortunate because there. I, I imagine you're a part of part of a cadre of people who are are in that boat. I mean, I begrudgingly paid for it just because I'm a huge Trekkie. I, I know you are too, but like, I could not watch it. Um, it just didn't. It, it it never even crossed my mind that I wasn't going to watch it. Um, but you know, I I I I'm really annoyed that I had to do that. Um, well, here's my thing: I'd rather buy it on iTunes. Sure, I agree. For a whole fucking channel that only has one show that I want to watch. Yep, agreed. Yeah, I literally, I literally paid five dollars an episode. Is what it ended up working out as. as I mean, like, um, shit. What is the thing I just bought? I bought something else, but I can't remember right now. But um, I watched that Gary Shandling documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. If you haven't yep. watched that, you need to watch that. Um, it's incredible. But it made me... I had already been watching, before I watched the documentary, I'd already been watching the Larry Sanders show, which is his 90s show. It's like a fake talk show. But I wanted to see his 80s show. It's Gary Shandling. Because in my child's mind, I saw a couple of those episodes. And I remembered... This is a weird part about my brain, but I remember interiors of buildings really well. Um, Like... Roseanne, I could tell you what the inside of the house, even before they brought the show back, I could tell you three years ago what the interior layout of Roseanne looked like. Um, and so I had that Gary Shandling set in my head. So I'm like, I need to watch that because, you know, like anytime you have like one of those little memories, but it's only a piece of one, you want to feed it and just, you know, see what happens. Sure. But the only place you could get that was on iTunes. So I bought it on iTunes. And... I kind of, in a way, kind of prefer that sometimes because then it makes things less distracting. You know, like if you if you pay, uh, I think I paid $20 for that season. You pay $20 for 16 episodes. You're going to watch those 16 episodes because you just paid $20. Whereas if, you know, I find Gary Shandling on Prime, might watch one or two episodes and be like, this show is pretty funny and then get distracted by something else. And then six months later, realize I never finished that season. In some ways, 
you know, I think I think the core of the episode in a weird kind of way is about value. Yes. You're because right. I because I feel like I feel like I've done literally the same thing. Like when I when I really want to see something now, I will buy it on Amazon Prime. Um and I, you know, that my my movie library is actually starting to get pretty big on Amazon Prime because of that, and it's because I can watch it anytime I want. I can watch it on any device I want, um, and I feel good owning it. I feel good supporting the, the the creation of the thing that I'm watching. Yeah, it was weird. Is I have, I don't know how this happened, but I had somehow got like two or three movies for free on Prime. It was like Big Hero, which I still have never watched. Um, Kung Fu Panda and Ice Age. I never, bought, I never bought any of these things and they were just in my prime. And then one day I signed into my Apple TV into my iTunes catalog and they were in my iTunes catalog too. Well, weird. Really weird. Um, I think maybe there was like, I remember there being this attempt at an app at one point that combined your video libraries for you uh-huh. um, with the permission of iTunes and with the permission of Prime and I think Google Store or whatever, maybe Microsoft too. Um, so maybe that's what did it. But uh, I have movies filtered throughout all the services that I've bought. But in iTunes, I'm I've never actually made the intention to buy a lot of stuff on iTunes. But I have like seventy movies on there, and I don't know how I've accumulated that many. I hear you though. My library on iTunes is actually pretty vast too. I think I'm about that same level. I'm up at like fifty, sixty movies. You know what pisses me off about? Um, Prime and all of these other things when it comes to buying stuff is they don't expect people to actually accumulate sizable libraries because oh, going sure. going through is a pain in the ass where you're like, I want to watch the fifth Harry Potter movie. Oh my God. I've been scrolling for two minutes just to get down to age. <laughs> you know, they, it's, it's like it's built for people who have like 12 movies. <laughs> sure. Well, I, this is why I don't even bother doing it that way anymore. Now I just go with the uh, search route. I just type in the name. But it makes browsing really difficult. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just want to peruse through your your gallery of things. Like I remember I used to do that with comic books. You know, I, I used to just peruse through my gallery of things and see what interested me that day. You know, it's really tough to do that now uh, just because the libraries are, are so overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like you need like a like an index card system <laughs> you flip oh, through the sure. index card and you go yep that's what i want to watch then you search for it on your device and watch it <laughs> Ugh. Uh, but you know what i'm that kind of fits into you know between gary shanling and me going back to paper and wanting to you know i've been trying to pull away from being in the front facing stuff with a lot of the podcast stuff uh I found I, I find myself really attached to the past. Um, like for example, for example, what I've been watching. Speaking of CNN, what I've been watching on Netflix is the '80s, and wow, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'm watching it and I'm like I'm completely obsessed with the '80s right now. Huh. I just I mean I want to almost like basically sounds weird to say I want to live in the '80s. You ever have those moments where you want to just dive back through your the, the 80s movie library and just watch a bunch of those movies again? Yeah, that's part of what I'm doing. You know, like between watching 80s TV shows, which I just kind of, I don't know why, but I I, I really love the fact that when I put them on, they're square. <laughs> they don't uh, take up yeah, the whole sure. screen anymore. Um, you know, I'm just kind of obsessed with that right now. And I think that 
it's just like my subconscious latching on to that desire to be a little more free. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, in the 80s, we were a little bit more free from this because we didn't have phones in our pocket all the time and all this stuff. And it's just, it's it's been really appealing to me. Hmm. I wonder, I, I wonder if you'll dive down very specific rabbit holes over time. I'm hoping to. What I'm, what I've been doing is just like I have this journal, and every time something comes up, and I'm like, oh, that's right, I want to check that out. When it, and it's just so far, it's just '80s stuff. I'm hoping what will happen is, you know, like I'm watching the '80s thing, and it reminds me of um, Miami Vice. So then I go watch Miami Vice and Miami Vice reminds me of Phil Collins. So then I end up listening to Phil Collins and then Phil Collins reminds me of something else. And, and then I just end up in a completely different place. <laughs> You're eating a ho-ho watching Back to the Future. <laughs> well, I'm hoping what it's going to take me down is... Um, see if you remember this. Actually, that's, that's a good thing to talk about. And anybody listening that's old enough to remember any of this stuff, if you can remember this stuff, I would appreciate your help. Because I'm making the 80s basically um, my hobby. Because I don't have any hobbies. Everything I do is for the public. <laughs> so I need, <laughs> I need a hobby for my sanity. So like this 80s thing is like my hobby. But um, I have tr- I've tried searching and I can't find the right search terms to find this stuff. But it seems like in my memory that there was um, in the 80s in New York a huge... VHS culture. Um, well, actually, let me say that differently. In the 80s, in New York, there was a huge avant-garde film um, film culture. And then the rest of the world had this kind of VHS culture where people would um, save parts of things on VHS. You know, like people used to make like mixtapes for people on VHS. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like here's a bit of George Carlin. And then here's an episode of uh, Golden Girls. And then, you know, like not even a whole episode, but, you know, like they would just put these things together. But it was all based around the aesthetic was coming from this 80s avant-garde film of stuff that they were doing. And in some way, it tied into public access television, too. And I want to find that stuff, but I don't even have a beginning idea of where to start. Yeah, that's a tough one. That might be just a project. Yeah, I mean that's why I'm like, listeners, please, if you know. <laughs> I mean, I wonder, I wonder who would have archived that stuff. I mean, I'm sure somebody did, um, because I, I imagine there are a lot of people during that period of time that valued that stuff to a pretty high degree. Well, and I think a lot of it too is probably tied to what at that time was very alternative culture, you know, like. Um, homosexual or gay, gay culture in New York or BDSM or um, not even sexual subcultures, but other, other subcultures like goth subculture and stuff like that. Because in the 80s, you still had these, because we didn't have mass internet, there wasn't really a, a way for um, those cultures to spread and connect across the world as easily. You know, it's like a video game culture. You know, they used to have games about uh, Donkey Kong. I mean, uh, magazines about Donkey Kong scores and stuff like that. So this was like an, an outgrowth of that that thriving subcultures. And I think I think that a lot of it wasn't just 
you know, a homemade VHS stuff like that. It's actually, there was movies made in that style and there were, you know, direct to video things made for, you know, like a mailing clubs. Remember those things? Like you join the thing and then you join this club and then they would send you a videotape. Yeah, I do remember that. I feel like uh, all of that's going to be somewhere. Like Columbia was the company that did that? Yeah, that was for DVDs. Huh. But yeah, I, th- I, mean, I don't mean that big of a scale. I mean like, you know... Oh, like, so you're talking about, yeah, among the small communities and stuff. Yeah, I, I understand. Like skateboarding videos was a great example. Oh, yeah, that's huge. That, I remember how huge those were. But at the same time, it was still subculture. It wasn't big enough to be in stores. So you had to like... You know, you had to join these clubs or you had to join these communities or whatever or magazines and then they, you would buy the VHS from them or from a, a local skate shop and stuff like that. There wasn't, there wasn't a huge mass culture to it. So it was different. You know, it was like, and you had these punk rock filmmakers because the mainstream wasn't making that stuff. Oh man, I, I, I now actually know what you're talking about. I actually did, I didn't get it at first until, yeah, because I remember looking for a lot of um, back in the day I was really into graffiti and breakdancing. Um, exactly. And and I remember I remember seeing like underground breakdancing videos that were really sick, but you're right, like they would be given around by a friends and you would have like a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, yes, from the exactly. Original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I totally know. And these and like there would be these uh, um underground documentaries and so that's why i said like connected to like gay culture and like bds uh, and stuff like that uh, okay, gotcha. because you know like somebody or connected to public access because somebody would would go i don't know this culture but they, t- they you know they remember those big camcorders with the vhs you just stuck right in the camera oh yeah they'd, they'd take one of those and just go interview people and then that would be you know that would be the video you know, it's just a, it was like avant-garde film because of the way they edited or whatever. But it was basically sometimes just a bunch of interviews. And it's just fascinating to me because I can... It's taken me, what, uh, almost 10 minutes to be able to explain it. So good luck searching for that on Google. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it took me 10 minutes. It's funny because it took me 10 minutes to understand it. And I know you really well. But the moment I understood it, like, holy crap, like, I totally know what you mean. And that's the rabbit hole that I'm hoping that I'm going to fall down. You know, like, like I said, you know, I get to Phil Collins and then Phil Collins did a music video. Who directed that music video? And then that guy had a friend who was an avant-garde filmmaker. Boom. I found an avant-garde video. Sure, sure, sure. That's the only way I know to find it. (laughs) That's fascinating. I wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about all the old, old, you know, directors now, Um, but I like the, the Chris Cunninghams and, and, you know, uh, romantics of the world, the guys who used to do all of those Spike Jones, you know. Um, well, I think what's yeah. interesting is like when you look at mass culture now, like the uh-huh. creators, the famous creators or whatever, there are many, many, many steps away from the underground and from the, um, the avant-garde and the subcultures. They're very, they're very separated from that stuff. Back then, they weren't. You know, like David Bowie was hanging out with like, junkie drug dealers sure, <laughs> when he came sure. to New York and Iggy Pop had a heroin problem and and William Burroughs lived in that in the Chelsea Hotel with a bunch of other like notorious seedy characters. There wasn't that separation. Yeah, but I think that's that's before 
fame became what it was. I mean, in you mm-hmm. in you in describing that era for what it was, I mean, fame as we know it really kind of didn't exist before Andy Warhol. Um, at least not not in in the way that we understand it now. I mean, sure, you still had your exceptions to the rule, people like you know um, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. But but people weren't famous the same way yet. You know, it wasn't a popularity contest in the same way that it was now, uh, or that it is now. And I think a lot of that was defined during that era. So you had celebrities who weren't afraid to go to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, and I think that maybe that's what's appealing to me about why I want to find that stuff is because there is, you know, like I'm sure that there's probably just even the you know, like um, Golden Girls. Like here's here's you know, you're like okay here's like mainstream television show. What if you're only two leaps away from something really crazy, and you know raw? Maybe I don't mean crazy as in bad, but I mean like crazy like as in raw. So because I mean TV shows and stuff like that, even the mainstream in the '80s wasn't that polished. Sure. I mean look at look at uh, music in the '80s. You know like Boy George and Madonna were mainstream, and they're about as their look was about as subculture as you get. Or Cindy Lauper too, right? Sure. So I think I, I think what fascinates me about that is like I'm wondering. It feels like after the '90s, that gap got really big, and and I think that's why there's so much, so much stuff that's in the mainstream right now is so polished that it's unappealing. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that's and anytime someone does something that isn't as polished, there's there's almost. I, I, I don't like that a big deal is made out of it. You know, I think about, um, you know, when the Foo Fighters are recording stuff or when um, Jack White was looking to record stuff that was more lo-fi, uh, that, that it was the exception to the rule, you know, um, that you didn't have these tightly compressed, super overmixed tracks um, and people thought that was revolutionary. You know, I think that's part of the reason why, why vinyl um, made a comeback, even though I think a lot of that's just just as a popularity social movement among like hipsters and people who don't really understand how and why. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people, like I remember, you know, a lot of our friends in particular, for example, who really are, are, are aficionados of music who wanted to get back into vinyl because there was nuance there, you know, because it wasn't perfect because there wasn't that, that compressed overmixed feel for, for the stuff that was coming out of that. And it's part of the reason why even to this day, like I don't really want to watch shows in HD. I don't you know. Either. I don't like, like it, it. It doesn't look right. It does. It looks very hyper real to me, and I don't it think makes that, me nauseous. Or yeah, nauseated, exactly. I you know, say. like I, I, it's 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 very it's very hyper real to me, and I don't think that that's the way I like to see the world. Yeah, there's the there's the 4K version of the Apple TV. I still have the one before because I'm like, yeah, 1080 is good enough. I don't need anything more than that. Well, not only that, but I, I really like 24p as a frame rate. You know, I don't like 30, oh, yeah. 30i or 60i. I mean, it's just too much. You know how I feel about that. <laughs> yes, I do. I yes, will not I watch 60 frames of anything unless yeah, it's really 20... fast motion slowed down. And you see, that's the wonderful thing about 24p is there's a softness to it um, that's really special. And I think that that going with a faster frame rate, you just inherently lose that. Yeah. The other thing I think you lose too in all of these things when you get obsessed with polishes, you lose the energy. There's a certain there's a certain life to something that's that's kind of a little bit broken, a little bit imperfect. Um, you know, like music is a great example of that, but then also 
like uh, recently I rewatched Weird Science, and oh, love that movie. It, it's it's not a great movie, but you love it, right? It, I mean, oh, you yeah. think about it, you're like it's stupid if I explained it to somebody, but it has like, there's almost like this this punk rock feel to it. You know, it's like uh, I wrote about this on on the journal too. These broken movies, you know, where like somebody was like, "I got an idea. Let's blow the piano through the chimney and let's ride motorcycles. Let's like you know have these mutants come in and ride motorcycles through the house." And let's uh, have this girl hold on to the piano and the, the chimney suck her clothes off. It's just like craziness. Like who would do that? They did. I mean, there's, to be honest, there are parts of that movie that not, have not aged well. Um, yeah, a little, a little racist, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anthony Michael Hall's um, pip voice for like five minutes. Yep. I was like yep. cringing the whole time. Yeah, it was a different era though. You You have to give him that. It's such a weird era because there were four black actors on the screen with them and they were just like kind of going with it. And I would be like, I was watching it and I'm like, if that was me, I would smack him in the head. I mean, it's not his fault. He was a kid. They were telling him to do that. But Yeah, plus plus you, you're, you're viewing it through the, through the lens of a modern sensibility. You know, back then that wasn't a problem. And I think it also wasn't as much of an exaggeration of of that type of talking as it is now because... It was closer to the 70s and people kind of forget this, but you know, like there was this thing, I don't know if, how um, widespread it was, but the, the, the jive talk, you know, sure. the pimp talk, there was like, that, that it was almost, you know, it wasn't ebonics, you know, like we had in the 90s and stuff like that. It was a completely different way of talking. And I think it came out of jazz. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm right on the history of that. And I think that that's kind of what that was supposed to be playing off of. But now, like 30 years later, it just looks horribly racist. Yeah, incredibly. And I'm not saying that it wasn't in any way racist then. Uh, I'm just saying now it looks even more because luckily as a, as a society, we've evolved. And who was that Kelly LeBrock who was the... Uh, oh my God. She's a knockout. I mean, I don't care. She, she, her, her beauty has definitely aged well. I think she's just as beautiful now as she was then, to be honest with you. Like I watched that movie again. I'm like, wow, you are stunning. <laughs> What's fascinating about that movie too is when you look at it from the surface, I wrote about this in that article too. So anybody that read this and is hearing me repeat myself, sorry, that's just, that's just life. It's just going to happen, man. Whatever. The, the journal's a rough draft. So then the, the next draft's going to pop out anywhere. Um, but that movie, when you look at it from the outside, it seems like a really sexist film. Like two boys make the perfect woman. And of course, she's gorgeous. But the thing about it is when you actually really start to take that movie apart, you're like, they're dorks, they're completely useless. They're wimps. They have no power. There's no power dynamic here at all. Chet, who seems like the most masculine man in the whole movie is kind of a douche and in the end turns out to be a pussy. Yeah. <laughs> so the only person in that movie and the parents are all the parents are idiots, like complete morons. Literally the only person in that whole movie that has power is Kelly LeBrock's character. Yeah. Lisa. Yeah. And not only does she have power, she has freaking superpowers. Yeah, she has like brilliant powers, yeah. And she's yeah, I think they give her like Einstein as part of her brain, right? Yep. So she's brilliant. And it's it's interesting. And then also you think about it, the whole point of that movie is these boys 
have to learn to get over this unrealistic magazine image of women and learn to like these two girls that are real women. Yep. And, so, and it's interesting you put it in that context because there's a lot more social commentary in that movie than, than you're aware of at first glance. You know, you just right. think it's a silly, silly 80s movie. But, you know, you're right. I mean, Kelly LeBrock's character is probably one of the most empowered women for that era. Because, I mean, if you look at the other, the other, the other, you know, Molly Ringwald movies at the time, like 16 Candles and stuff like that, like there's an inherent weakness in the women. Not Kelly LeBrock's character. She's a damn superhero. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, there's no, there's not a single scene in that movie where anybody has to save her. She saves everybody else. <laughs> she's literally... Or, or a single scene in that movie where she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. She's, she's completely competent at every single point. Yeah. I mean, she literally, like, she is the perfect woman. <laughs> she's strong. She's powerful. She's independent. She's smoking hot. She's confident. I mean, like, there's, like, nothing you could say bad about her. Yeah, so they achieved that. I mean, if their 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 goal was to achieve the the view of what the perfect woman was, then they achieved that well. But who would have guessed, though? I mean, I didn't think all these things back when I saw it. In the, who, Hell no! I, all I thought 10? was with my groin. Yeah, of course. Jeez, <laughs> I was you know I was actually I was a little bit younger than them, so maybe I didn't think about that yet. Um, but uh, that's part of the interesting thing about going back and looking at some of this 80s stuff is being able to review it through the context of what I've learned and how it... And honestly, sometimes movies really surprise me. Like, that, like that's a great surprise. You're like, that is actually a fairly... I'm sure an actual strict feminist would probably tear me apart, which, Ugh. of course, that's, that's, that's her place to do because I am a man. So I can't take it apart as well as... as someone who actually is invested, more invested in feminism than I am. Sure. But that's why, that's why I have trouble when men use the word feminist. Yeah, I agree with like, that. I don't think you deserve that. And it has nothing to do with you know, like, anything other than that. It's, it's just like you have a penis. <laughs> well, it's, it's appropriation with a, with a lack of perspective. And I think that those two things together are really damaging. You know, mm-hmm. like, no, you, you can't have any concept of what it's like for example, to be an Asian guy, unless you're an Asian guy, you know? Right. And I think that's, it's, that's a very good point you make there. It's the combination of those two that people forget is the dangerous thing. Appropriation alone is not a bad thing. Um, it can be if it's exaggerated, and but it has to have an intent, sure, to, a malicious intent to it, I think, for it to be bad. Because it, I, I, think, I think we talked about this before, but the idea of like, if it wasn't for appropriation of like Native American symbology and movies and stuff like that there's whole generations of people that wouldn't have grown up fascinated by native americans it's 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 like what we talked about last week with dissemination of ideas like occam's razor and how it gets stated wrong all the time but if it didn't get stated in oversimplified forms it would never make it as widespread as it does so Do you think that's? Ways, I mean, I think that i think there's a limit to that though i think there are times mm-hmm. where it can be damaging there's a limit to everything though right sure good point especially when it comes to social context. I mean, you're playing with fire, but at the same time, it's like these movies. That's, I think that's why these movies are so full of energy is because they're not trying to solve problems, but they are trying to poke the hive. And, sure. and sometimes that's more valuable because I feel like we've reached a point where um, not only is everything so polished, but everything is so calculated that it actually doesn't ever really penetrate 
you, you can't break through things in, you know, like I'm going to make a movie about AIDS and then you make sure that every character is exactly to fit the way that you want and nothing pushes the boundaries. And then people don't engage with it the same way because they can feel that calculation. You know, and, and this might be why I love the Marvel movies. I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking now as to why, you know, like what modern movie does that? Um, and you know, my brain automatically goes to, um, indie movies, um, even some of the more big, big budget ones that I really like, like Ex Machina, that was really great. Um, plus I really like Alicia Vikander. I think she's a fantastic actress and she's beautiful, but you know, I think that's part of the reason why I really, really like the Marvel movies. I'm just thinking through the characters that I really dig and like how problematic they are, you know? know how 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 imperfect they are um, like you know I, I know we've already talked about Thor's journey um, at some point on this podcast but you know just to see the, the 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 stark contrast between where they began as to where they are now it's I think that's 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 part of what you're talking about I mean and sure those movies are perfectly polished don't get me wrong the editing and the CGI and everything else about them is fantastic but the and, and as perfect as you can probably get it with modern technology but the one thing that isn't perfect the one thing that i absolutely love is that none of the characters are perfect they're all flawed they're all broken they're all afraid of something you know and 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 it isn't that they're these these weird demigods that just run into like this and i think that's part of the reason why the the dc movies fall flat um, in comparison to the marvel movies is because there's no humanity in them well, I think that's the danger of of the zone that we're getting in as a society right now is we're, we we want things to improve, um, but we want it to improve overnight. You know, like we want it to happen yesterday and it's not going to happen that way. People have to learn and outlearn things, which means going through periods of imperfection, periods of people and characters, sometimes saying inappropriate things or stepping over the line. Because the only way you learn where the line is, is to step over and go, oops, that was a little bit too far. I don't need to go that far. And if we can't accept people doing that, then we're never going to get to that better place. Have you seen seen Deadpool yet, by the way? The first one? Yeah. Okay, good. I, I mean, that's a great example, right? Yeah, that's that's where I was going with that. Like that that perfectly defines what you're talking about. Like just such a big middle finger to the the perfect world of modern cinema. <laughs> well, and it's a throwback to those '80s films too. It has that energy. I think that's why it was the most popular Marvel film. And there's there's all the the cuts in at the end was um, uh, from Ferris, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So I'm it, it's it's so succinct in, in 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 describing it the way that you are. Like it's not just accidentally that way. It's purposefully that way. And I think the reason that going back also to watch old movies is valuable is because they broke those things. They didn't know they were breaking those those boundaries or testing those boundaries. But there's no repercussions because it's already in the past, right? You know, if somebody, nobody could make a film like Weird Science now it, or all in the family, you know, like, <laughs> like nobody would be have the guts to make all in the family right now because they think not knowing they think it's a show about promoting racism what they oh, don't sure. know is that show was actually one of the most important things in civil rights at that time because it showed a side of racism with humanity in the sense that it's like this guy is 
yeah, he believes some crazy racist shit. Um, but then he also loved Sammy Davis Jr. And Sammy Davis Jr. wanted to be on that show because he saw what they were doing. And Carol O'Connor, who played Archie Bunker, was about as liberal as you can get in real life. He wasn't like, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Um, shit. Doesn't matter. So whoever, some, just fill in the blank with um, whoever is on TV that's um, super conservative and plays a super conservative <laughs> character on a TV show. <laughs> he was playing against that, but he wasn't playing as, as an insult um, to one side or the other. He was playing as, a, they were playing that show as a way to begin to understand the complexities and the nuance. And you couldn't get away with that right now because people would just see it and go, this is what it is. This is something we talk about all the time. But, but, but maybe, but maybe we are heading back to that again. You know, I, maybe, maybe there's a generation of, of filmmakers and artists that are are not afraid to go back to that place again. Because I think it goes in fits and waves, right? Like I think pop culture, as we understand it, um, because there's always an overcorrection. Um, like I remember the grunge era and how introspective and, and hipstery people were back then. Like, you know, people forget that, that we've, we've always had hipsters in some way that they've just always been called something different and they've dressed differently, but the ideas are always the same, you know? So I think, I think we might be headed back to that point again, where, where certain artists are, are, are getting more and more brave and are willing to take on issues in a, 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 a much more creative way. I'm, I'm just thinking, I, I think maybe I'm projecting um, because I really want the next season of True Detective to be that. Uh, but the original writing team is coming back. So I'm very curious as to what this third season is going to look like. And I hope given what the, the trailer looks like and what the description of the, the seasons look like so far, that they actually go down that gritty, grimy road and aren't afraid to be you know, um, you know, hard, hard about it, you know, just unapologetic about about looking at at the darker side of the world in an important way without uh, without flinching, and I hope I hope you're right because I mean if we keep going down the uh, the road of this overcompensation and we keep going too far, what people don't realize is at a certain point you you kill all creativity completely. Agreed. You know, be, I mean, at a certain point uh, you won't be able to say any word. But like, I'm sorry, you can't say the word oatmeal because that triggers me. Fuck you. <laughs> It's the word I'm yeah. saying. I'm saying it's, oatmeal. It, I, it's a great. I, I remember. I remember seeing an article on CNN, and it's you know very rarely do I I see insightful things in modern news these days, um, other than just the facts without opinion. But I remember reading an article recently that talked about what's wrong with the world. Um, you know, both in politics as well as in our, our social understanding of the things around us. Is that we just don't laugh anymore. You know, and we don't laugh at at, at we laugh at very specific things, um, not realizing that you have to be able to laugh at everything if you're really going to understand your world. And I think that that extends to what you're talking about too, which is, yeah, I, I don't care. Like, I mean, this modern term of this, this thing called a microaggression, I mean, come on, what what the, what the fuck are we doing? What the fuck are we doing? We're building pussies. Sorry. That's a sexist term. I know we're building wimps. Sorry. I was born in 1977. I have to outlearn that term, but we're building cowards who can't stand up to anything like, Oh, you can't be offended for five seconds. Grow some guts. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, even in some of the stuff that we did with artists previously, um, you know, it's talking about Bob Dylan or Nick Cave or Tom Waits. Who Did we ever end up doing an episode on Tom Waits? No, 
God, that's maybe so that's weird. where we'll start with the with the of, premium of, content. Of all the damn people that not do Tom Waits, unbelievable. But my point is that, um, oh my God, what was my point? <laughs> I just derailed the train. We're building. I, I said we're building time. wimps, and we're we're building cowards and people that can't stand up to these these. You know, the, the I'm sorry. Um, you know, I'm going to protect you from these microaggressions. But what we're really building is 1984. Yeah, basically. And, yeah, and I think I, I think that's where where I was going with it. With you know, if we look at guys like like Dylan and 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 even Bowie um, to a certain extent. Is that their the entire point of their careers was to subvert. Right. And and this is the point where, you know, you look at some of the things that people on the right are pissed off about. And when it comes to some of this stuff, they're correct. They are correct. That you can't, you can't, I mean, you, you can't push these things too far because the whole, all of society unravels and we have nothing left. Yeah. You have to, people have to learn to accept some just like you have to learn as you get older to deal with discomfort because your body starts to ache and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. You have to learn to be offended sometimes. It doesn't mean it, it should be something that's continuous and it shouldn't be something that, you know, like for example, a woman should be feel that she has the right to speak up in a meeting, you know, sure. but it doesn't mean that every single time that she's walking down a hall, if she happens to overhear a sexist joke, that she can burn down the whole building. You know, sometimes sure. you just have to go, wow, those two guys telling that joke, they might be douchebags and just eat that and accept that they're douchebags and not get caught up in this victim complex. You know, it's not that I don't think these things are that are wrong, that I want people to go around offending each other. It's that I want people to realize that they're stronger than having to be protected in every way from these things, that we are more than that, that we are resilient. Because that's, that's what creativity is. I have the other side of that, which is, I forget who said this, the, the world is satire. I don't remember. It's probably, it was probably like Charlie Chaplin or somebody like that. Um, but my, my reaction is same even, the same, even though I want my, my, my outcome to be a little different, which is there's nothing in the world we shouldn't be able to laugh about because it takes the power away from that thing when we're able to laugh about it and talk about right. it. Because I, I think talk, laughing about it is the prelude to talking about it. And unless you can talk about things, they just get buried. And whether yes. it's racism or, or politics or whatever it may be, like, for example, this, this whole stigma about not being able to talk about religion or politics, fuck you, I'm talking about it. Why not? You right. know what I mean? Like that's, that's the reason why these things have become such such mythical monsters to all of us like they're these 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 lavish constructs is because we can't discuss them so screw that i'm gonna talk about them <laughs> and i mean we've said this before but like that's kind of what's what free speech in this country is supposed to be it's supposed to be accepting the fact that understanding the fact i should say that by protecting my ability to say what i feel means that that guy over there who says really gross stuff is protected too. Yeah, sure. Totally. And and, it, and like I said, it, it's, it's a difference between, you know, when, when there's an all-out uh, assault on someone, you know, where you're trying to destroy someone and you're continually pushing them and, you know, abusing them and a passing comment or somebody makes a joke that maybe you don't like, like, or a, a professor says something in a class. This is the shit that really freaks me out is, you know, these 
I think we're obsessed with power is what it is right now. We're, uh, power and anger are really popular right now. And, you know, a professor gets up and he says something in class and somebody decides they don't like that. And then they gang up and they basically get the dude fired for teaching something that's probably, in some of the cases, scientifically true. You know, like uh, the, there's a case of a professor getting fired when he said something about... um sexual dimorphism in animals or something like that. And they didn't like that because they, they didn't like the way that that would be applied to humans. So they got to do fired. Ah, oh, it's bullshit. And the, the reason that bothers me more than I'm not worried about the dude or whatever. I mean, it sucks because he was probably a really good teacher and he wasn't trying to offend anyone is that it doesn't take number one, doesn't take into regards intent, which I think is if you, if you don't take into, we wouldn't have a criminal justice system if we didn't take intent into account. If we just looked at what happened and we didn't worry about what the person's intention was, everybody would be in fucking prison. And the second thing is, if you keep destroying teachers and you keep making them afraid to teach things that are maybe challenging, we're all going to be not only cowards, we're going to be idiots. Because college, especially, college is a place where you're confronted with ideas that maybe you're not comfortable with. Because that's where you learn to figure out what you actually believe. The most, the most important things I ever learned about life were things I learned when I felt unsafe. Right. And, or when a teacher made me feel like a moron. Yeah. Like, or, or, or feel challenged or, or, or questioned my belief system or questioned my, my, my reasoning for things. I mean, absolutely. Or if, a teacher, if, if a teacher isn't allowed to be brave in, in thought and, and creativity, then what the hell's the point? I mean, what are we trying to teach people to be? <laughs> and, you know, like, for example, like you said, like, uh, you know how I know I'm not racist? Because when I hear somebody say a really racist joke, I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable because I, 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 I can see it. I'm like, oh, that's gross. And if I, if I wasn't confronted with that, maybe I wouldn't be as clear on what I actually believe. Sure. And I, I, it's really important for us to understand, you know, like building muscle in the body requires a level of hormesis. And hormesis is like... It's a very technical term, and I'm going to do the thing that we made fun of last week with Occam's razor, and I'm going to narrow this down to a very simple, uh, simplistic explanation. It, in a way, it's like saying a little bit of poison makes you stronger. Um, when, when you build muscle by tearing down muscle, you have to you have to do little micro tears. And every when you're lifting weights, you're putting micro tears in, and when it heals, it builds up. And then you put in micro tears, and it heals, and it builds up. We need society. We need societal hormesis. We need to be able to accept that sometimes there's going to be bitterness. And and you know the, I I've, I had an argument, not an argument. This is not an argument. It's actually a fantastic discussion with one of my way conservative friends. And you know he 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 was saying specific things about Muslims and you know, and and what's funny is I didn't completely disagree with everything he said. Um, but one of the things that that came out of the conversation was, you know, if we're talking about free speech, I completely support that. You know, I, it's probably in my mind, it's the most defining thing within our constitution that makes America what it is. Um, you know, if he's allowed to say some mildly, mildly racist shit, then I'm also allowed to call him an ass backwards fuckhead. And both of those statements are okay. Right. Because you're not, you know, you're not taking it too much where it's like, okay, you know, another thing too, like when somebody's telling you stuff like that, they're usually playing it up. Sure. Everybody bolsters their, what they're saying to make it stronger when they tell somebody else, because 
we've been taught to win. Sure. You know, we've been taught to win discussions. So what I'm going to make And I mean, even though um, I do, I, I, you can see it in politics. You turn on the news, you watch these guys and you're like, they're hamming it left and right. You know, that, that's, that's why I'm, politicians discuss me in general is because there's so much hamming. And I'm like, that's not even what you believe. Yeah, sure. You're just playing. You're playing to the audience. It's it's like Ben Affleck on that Bill Maher thing. He was playing to the audience. Sure, one hundred percent. And it it it's disgusting. Well, I, I, and I think that's that's one, part of the axioms of our show, or one of the core idioms is is you know this this search for 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 the sincere. You know this this search this this anti disingenuousness. I don't even know if that's a word, but. Um, I think that, that that part of the reason why certain politicians throughout the last you know political cycle, especially the the the, the um, presidential election, a lot of the reason why certain candidates didn't get votes was because of the disparity between what they believed and what they said. You know, the, the party line that they towed, or the, the 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 shit that they said just in order to make their base happy. You know, that's why this guy won. It wasn't even, I don't even think it's the, I don't think everybody that voted for him liked everything he said. They just knew that he actually was just, he was talking out of his ass. They're like, well, at least I know what he thinks. Yeah, at least he's for real, you know, like for for better or for worse. Um, he's a know, lunatic, but it's a real lunatic. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I think, I think I, I remember, you know, Bill Barr, Bill Burr, who I love, by the way. Um, and Bill Burr saying something like that during one of his comedy specials, which is he's too dumb to be fake. Right. And, and I think that that's part of the appeal of him in a weird kind of way. It's, I mean, it's the same reason why people voted for, for uh, George W. Um, is because he was the kind of president you could sit down and have a beer with. I, yeah. I personally, as a person, don't want that necessarily. <laughs> you know, I want, I want the president of the United States to represent the best of us in every possible way, including intellect. So I don't necessarily want to not feel intimidated by my president. But that's the reason why people vote for that kind of candidate is because well, that's how Clinton won too. Yeah, there's there's a very there's a very there's a very honest you know earnestness to them that's that's really unique. Well, that model in some way all comes from Reagan. Having just watched the episode of that CNN show, the '80s, where they talk about the Reagan thing, hugely popular president, hugely yeah. popular because. He was, I mean, literally everybody that like in the thing that talking to him that knew him, they're like, what you saw is what you got. Like, that's literally who he was. Like, sometimes he'd be angry, but most of all, he was a very, very sweet person. And he really did think that everything he was, even though he was wrong about stuff, he really did think he was doing stuff for the best. Sure. And that made him hugely popular because even, um, also he got, well, I shouldn't say he got lucky politically, not personally. He got lucky by getting shot really early, um, because everybody united together behind him. And I thought about that. I'm like, wow, why did that happen? And I'm like, oh, because they just lost a president not that long ago. Sure. So I, I, I feel like that probably scared the shit out of America. Yeah. I don't doubt that. Because most of those people had already gone through the Kennedy assassination. And I, I think that that model, though, that model of of the president, it, it went from the president that you liked because he felt genuine to the president that, uh, you know, like you said, the president that we could have beers with. It's kind of the same thing. It's a little bit different. And then all of a sudden it became the president that's just like us. You know, like 
he don't like science either. And that's why we like him. That's I'm not making fun of anybody, but that's literally what some people think. Not everybody who voted for him, but some people think that. Like, sure. he doesn't get that either. And he said, motherfucker. And I like I like that. And that that's what they connected with. They're like, oh, he's like me. And I don't agree with stuff the guy believes, but I can understand why people want to feel that way. Yeah, I get the appeal. I get it. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't want that either. That's why the left like Obama. Because they're like, oh, he's like me. And because that's what the way the, a lot of people on the left see themselves. Articulate, sure. intelligent, composed. That's how they see themselves. Sure. And then people on the right see themselves a little bit, well, we're a little bit crazy. And we like that. And they're proud of that. You know, and I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. But literally, you see people vote. Now we vote to um, affirm our image of ourselves. It's sure. not about who can run the country well. Hmm. So we've gone full circle then. I mean, there's the whole um, president ever since Kennedy and probably before the presidency has always just been a popularity contest. And and we've reached that, that turning point where it really, really is that. And, never, we're even, and we're not even ashamed about it anymore. I mean, why there was nobody that ran against George Washington because sure, he was sure. that popular. So, I mean, it's always been that. But that's, I mean, the difference is back then that job wasn't that important. It's, mm-hmm. it's not like what it is now. There's a lot more responsibility that falls into that office. Sure. That maybe doesn't belong there. But that's another episode. <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole deep rabbit hole in and of itself. I mean, there's so much changing too on the world stage. I mean, things are just getting crazy. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like that is is segueing into something that may actually be an interesting topic for us moving forward, which is so what happens in 2020, you know, given how far we've gone in a certain direction, how far will it swing back or are we finally finding a point where the pendulum will find some kind of median point to rest upon, you know? I think that in some ways, I think there's a possibility that it could all break apart. And I don't mean the government falling apart, but I mean that the, we end up with more than two political parties. You know, yeah. that the fracturing happens. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we'll see. We're going to find out, right? Yeah, we have no choice now. Everybody hang on. Here we go. Oh, you know something um, to veer off of politics for a second, because there's something we touched on earlier that actually reminded me of something and I wanted to tell you. So I wrote it down um, when we were talking about uh, being free from, you know, like going back to paper and all that stuff. I happened to read this article on Medium and this guy, it's six years without, with a distraction-free iPhone. And it's, it's really fascinating. You have to read it. But basically it's this guy, um, he worked at Google. He worked at all of these like, tech big tech places he worked he was on the gmail team like he's been he's he's a techie he's not a luddite and uh, i guess six years ago he took his iphone and he just started realizing he's like i guess he was playing with his kids and his his son was like daddy why are you looking at your phone and he just like just felt like a total asshole and he's like oh my god this thing this thing but he didn't want to throw it away you know like so he started like um gradually getting rid of stuff where he's like, well, let's, let's get rid of all the social media apps or, and the games on my phone. Let's get rid of all that stuff. So he took all of that stuff off. 
And then he's like, um, you know what? Uh, I need to get rid of Chrome and I need to disable Safari. So he disables Safari. And he's like, I need to get rid of all these news apps. I, so he gets rid of all the news apps. And then he's like, okay. And then the big one, I have to get rid of email. Oh, <laughs> so man. Takes email off his phone. And he's like, literally, he's like, oh, I guess he doesn't really specifically say everything that he has on his phone now. But basically, he says, you know, he still uses it for podcasts and for music and for maps and calling an Uber and all, and obviously, probably calling people on the phone. And he doesn't say whether he uses it for text messages or not. So I'm not sure about that. But it's really fascinating. And he's like, basically, kind of like sets up the, this challenge to people. He's like, just try it for like two days. He's like, I just, he's like, I told myself I was going to do it for like a month. He's like, it's been six years. Holy shit. It's pretty crazy. Wow. I no, think you could do that. I, man, I would have to unravel so much of my life. Um, just because, I mean, I've spent I've spent years turning my phone into a personal assistant, and I would have to find replacements for all of those various tools first before I just drop them completely. Okay, this is a good conversation. Let's actually think this out. What would you have to do? Let's let's go through this in our minds right now. Like, what would you have to do? What would your first step be? Um, first thing is, I would have to re. I would have to re-understand how I, I look at... Oh, no, re-understand. I would have to rethink how I, I deal with email um, because I communicate with so many so many business associates and, and all that kind of stuff through email. Um, and a lot of it kind of... I think it's because I haven't set the expectation that I only answer my emails during certain times of day. Um, a lot of that communication, typically, there's an expectation that it's going to be fairly instantaneous. Mm. Um, so, you know, so I have to. So do you I have feel to like that gives you stress? People. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. See, this is maybe this is why this is a good exercise to talk about because we might both figure out stuff that we should fix, anyways. Like, oh, it seems sure. to me like immediately that's something you need to fix, whether you do this or not. <laughs> yeah, no, one hundred percent. I've actually been thinking that for a while. Um, I, I feel like I'm not at a place in my job where I can demand such a thing, but I I might be close where I'm just going to say, "Hey, I'm going to check my email two times a day." And I might start with three and slowly work my way down. You know what I mean? So I might start with like um, 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and 4 o'clock or something like that. And then go, go, to, go to like 11 to 3. Um, but I have, to, I have to set that expectation first. I feel like um, I'm pretty sure it's in this article too. But he's somewhere I read. Actually, I'm almost positive it's in that article. But he says that uh, studies have shown that people who check their messages less frequently are number one, less stressed but also more productive because when they actually sit down to check the messages, they deal with all of them instead of putting them off or leaving them sitting in the inbox. Sure. But I also have to change how, how people I, I, I work with use email too. I think that's the other problem. Um, right. Because you know, you're at their beck and call. Yeah, exactly. And, and not only that, but like from, from my perspective, I want to be able to set it up so that Unless it's important, you're not just going to send me random questions about bullshit, you know. Right. Um, and 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 that's it's not it's not a way to have a conversation. And that's that's it's something I had to do. I think it's been been about almost a year now. And first thing I I, I sent, I told, um, I had to set expectations too. I had clients, and I said, "Hey, this is how much you pay me for. You know, this is how many hours you pay me for." 
those hours will be on this day during this time and this time. So if you come, yeah, sure. Like, do we change our our perceptions of of time and 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 responsibility and and how much does the societal um, construct of who that person was at the time like was that acceptable at the time? You know, and if it was, then then how can we possibly hope to hold today's moral lens to a time in which the morality was very very different? Right. I mean. If, if if we're responsible for everything, you know, like if we're if we're responsible for everything we did 30, 40 years ago, and, and that's never going to change, then guess what? We might as well just start executing everyone. Yeah. Because we sure. can't have, there's no reform in prison anymore. Because now we believe that that person can never become better. That that guy who was in the, uh, that neo-Nazi, you know, that now is not a neo-Nazi, that actually gives speeches, uh, anti-racist speeches that talks about how horrible living in that world was, he's in, in, in our worldview, then he's always going to be a Nazi. I, I, I actually hope that at some point, one of those guys actually, not, I'm not assuming it's a guy, I'm not assuming it's a racist that's inherently white, but I, I, I just want to say, like, I want one of those people who's accused of one of those things to come and say, yes, I was that, and I'm not anymore. And I'm not going to apologize for being what I was because that's who I was in that moment. All I can do is hope to be a better person each and every day that I walk this earth. And that's got to be good enough for me, and it's got to be good enough for everybody else because otherwise we should just call it quits right now. You know, I I can't believe I'm going to say this and you're not going to want to hear it. Somebody did do that. Who? Donald Trump. Oh, God. When the grab him by the pussy thing, that's almost exactly what he said. Uh, yeah, you're right. You know what, though? If, if Trump... Oh, God. Man, the number of people who are going to get hate on for this episode if they ever listen to this. If, if, if he actually turned it around right now and did a fantastic job from this point forward, I would, I would actually kind of be okay with it. Well, of course you should, because if he turned it around and started doing things for the better of people, anybody that begrudged somebody that was actually doing better for people would be a fucking idiot. Who cares who's doing it? Or, or he's Mister Dan Rogers. Come on, I know who the fuck were those people? Those people need to get a life. If you're spending your time shitting on Mister Rogers, Jesus. Hmm. Um. I have a, I have a, you know, I always like to bring up the synchronicities, Lamb. Um, I have a really good synchronicity for you. This one, um, this is metaphorical, but it almost made me poop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so going back to everything we've talked about in this episode and quitting social media and removing them from my phone and all of this stuff, right? So I have my little pocket notebook and I have a black... Um, space pen, the bullet space pen, right? Um, and I used to have, I used to carry field notes, but I went to these, um, they're called word notebooks mm-hmm. because they have these little bullets. Um, so I can check things off when I've, you know, when I'm done with it because everything in here moves somewhere else. But I used to have field notes and I used to have a brass space pen. And one day I could not find the brass space pen. I looked everywhere. I'm like, I, I, I must have dropped it. I must have lost it somewhere. And then that's why I bought this black one. Um, 